to a special edition of our show, Herstory, on the rocks, with Katie and Allie. Normally just be Allie and I hanging out with a couple of cocktails talking about famous women in history, but sometimes we like to talk to people who are writing about Sometimes people who should be more famous in history. Yeah. <laughs> we have a very special guest here with us today, Buzzy Jackson. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. We're happy to have you. Buzzy is an award-winning author of three nonfiction books. She is a PhD, or Pahada, as I like to call it, <laughs> in history from UC Berkeley. And she is here with us today to talk about her upcoming novel, To Die Beautiful. And I think it comes out on, like, what, May, thir- May no, 2nd? The second. Yeah. May 2nd, so soon. Oh, my gosh. I know. I'm very excited. Very I'm- excited. It's my debut novel. It's amazing. Like, so exciting. Shocking to me. Yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into writing? Sure, yeah. Um, I actually grew up around a lot of writers. My dad is an author. He writes mystery novels. And so I kind of was always around it and maybe for that reason didn't really accept the fact that I also wanted to be a writer until later (laughs) because (laughs) I think I was like, oh, I'll, you know, do something else. I'll work in publishing. I'll be a professor. And then finally I was like, you know what? I love writing books. So um, yeah, my first three books are nonfiction, just about different nonfiction subjects. And then this one actually started as a nonfiction book. I just assumed I would write a biography, you know, a straight up biography of Hani Shaft, who were going to talk about. Um, and then as I got into the research, I realized that there wasn't, you know, she didn't leave a diary behind like Anne Frank, for example. Um, and so my agent, my literary agent actually suggested, well, maybe you should try writing it as a novel. And I was pretty skeptical, I will say, but The truth is I'd already written three, what I would call practice novels. So these are just novels that nobody will ever see that are in the virtual desk drawer in the cloud. And, um, and so I thought, well, I'll just try it. And so that's how this came about. Perfect. Well, we're so excited to talk about your book and to talk about honey. Uh, But first we have to talk about the cocktail we made for your book. Yay. Alert. It's red. So this is obviously called To Die Beautiful. Um, so I wanted to make sure we included gin because gin is very big in the Netherlands, which is where mm-hmm. she's from. So it's gin, grenadine, creme de violet, and lemon juice all shaken together and poured over ice with a lemon. Cheers! Yes. That sounds great. Very nice, that's, actually. <laughs> I wish I was drinking something a little more exciting, but uh, that's a beautiful cocktail, I have to say. It looks gorgeous. <laughs> and... um. And I have to say, I think that's a good name for a cocktail to I dive into. So oh yeah, it sounds kind of dangerous. Like, yeah. you know, don't drink too many. You know, exactly. We gotta so get this on bars around the country. Yes. Like, we could really do this. <laughs> totally, I'll vouch for you for sure. <laughs> so, before we dive completely into your book, let's set the scene. This book follows the fascinating life of Dutch Resistance member Hani Shaft. What was life like for her and other women in the Netherlands during World War II? Well, um, the Netherlands was a neutral country, like it had been in World War I, because they're so tiny, you know, it, and they have hardly any military. It's not really, it's not really practical for them to pick a side, you know, in that sense. And so in World War I, they kind of escaped the worst of it. But in World War II, um, they, despite being neutral, the Germans uh, took occupation of their country in May of 1940, and then they were there for the next five years. 
And it was a weird, it was different in the Netherlands than in some other places where the Germans uh, were occupiers because um, the Germans saw the Dutch as sort of like part of their Volk, like part of their people, you know, like they, they speak Dutch, not German. And if you tell a Dutch person, it sounds like they're speaking German, like never do that. Uh, they're different languages, but you know, they are related languages. And so, and also, you know, we've all seen the image of like the blonde hair, blue eyed Dutch milkmaid or whatever. So the Germans in the Netherlands um, came in and really sort of wanted to just convince the Dutch people the Gentile ones anyways, that they were like their big brother was here to fold them into the family kind of thing. And I think for women um, at that time, you know, the Netherlands was a pretty progressive place uh, by the time standards, just like it is today. Um, and at first, I think a lot of people just went about their daily lives. You know, Hani uh, was a student and she kept going to college and people went to their jobs. Um, but the anti-Jewish kind of policies of the Germans, really, they kind of, instead of doing like a big sort of Kristallnacht type, you know, dramatic ousting of the Jews, it was more like a very slow, um, slow little anti-Semitic laws were put into place over time. And I think their idea was to like, let's not rile up the population. Let's not make a big scene we can maybe get rid of all these Jews before the rest of the Dutch people have even figured this out. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I think bit by bit, um, by 1943, I think most, most Dutch people knew that life was not the same there as it had, you know, as it had been when they, the Germans first arrived, it was very obvious that Jews were being deported and, um, Hani herself, um, she was in college, but at that point in 1943, the Germans demanded that all college students sign a loyalty oath to the Nazi party. And the idea was when you finish your college education, then you will be inscripted, conscripted into the army, the German army. And Hani and about 75 to 85% of all students there refused to sign the loyalty oath, which is pretty impressive because they all were immediately kicked out of school. And so that's really when... Connie's life dramatically changed. And I think a lot of, a lot of people's, you know, at that point. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was interesting because you say in the book that um, the Netherlands had a very different, like they had a higher percentage of resistance than maybe some of the other countries, which I found really interesting. And mm -hmm. so, and you have Hani there and she first kind of becomes a member of the resistance and she's just a courier. She's just doing little things. And then she beces an assassin. <laughs> yes, indeed. She How sure does did. that happen? <laughs> yeah, that was my question too. Honestly, um, yeah, I was fascinated by that because not only was she, you know, not in. I mean, the Dutch did have a military, a small one. She wasn't part of it. She had never been interested in anything like that, and was a very kind of what we would call like a bookworm. You know, she was sat in the back of class. She didn't talk in class. She was very shy. But, um, you know, I think what happened is that when she was in college, she met these two girls her own age, uh, Philine and Sonia, who were both Jewish. And they were really like the first Jewish people she had ever known, or at least 
been aware of. There are a lot of Jews, most of the Jews who lived in the Netherlands had lived there for hundreds of years. So, and they were very assimilated. So she may not have even known she had other Jewish friends, but anyway, she knew about Sonia and Feline because they got kicked out of school a lot of, like a year earlier than she did. And I think she just had, um, I think seeing this happen to people she was really close to was so shocking um, that I think she kind of, all of the, we know that she had a lot of um, sort of idealistic views about justice and, you know, freedom and liberty and all these things. And she wanted to be a lawyer, kind of a human, what we would call a human rights lawyer. And so I think when this happened to two of her good friends, she just was like, you know what, like, this is real, like, it's actually happening. And when she met, uh, met up with the, this one resistance cell, it turned out, you know, they were, I don't know that she necessarily sought out an armed resistance cell, but the one she did, the Rod von Verzet, which was a council of resistance, um, they definitely used guns. And not only that, but they already had two female members in the group, which was also really unusual. And those women, Truce and Freddie Overstegen, also used guns. So I think she just dove in head first. And at that point, she was hiding her friends in her parents' house. So she kind of she kind of just went for it, I think, and just radically uh, became this kind of freedom fighter. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's something like I um, one of the reasons I hesitated to write a novel about it is because people might not think it was true, but it was true. <laughs> she actually did it, you know. Yeah, and I think it's probably also important to note that even though there are this large group of people not signing, you know, these agreements, there are people, um, you know, like Corey Ten Boom, who's in the Netherlands, who right. her family's fighting back, and she, not fighting back, but hiding people, and mm-hmm. she ends up in Auschwitz. So <laughs> it is not like uh, just, oh, you know, there's more of us standing up, so we're safe. No, not, absolutely. And She's a, Corey Ten Boom's a great example. I mean, one of the things that, you know, I learned writing the book is that for people like Hani to do her job, that's like sort of the glamorous, very dangerous, but also kind of more exciting work. It really rests on the participation of a lot of other people in the society who are willing to do things like donate some of their ration cards to a neighbor who they know is probably hiding a Jew and they're not going to tell the police. They're going to donate some food to this person, you know, small acts that really go a long way. Um, Or just the decision to like, look the other way when you see maybe your neighbor is hiding somebody, you know, Um, none of it, none of the people who were hiding could have survived unless people just did those small things. Mm -hmm. And I should say also that the Netherlands, was the only place where um, there was a mass demonstration of non-Jews in protest of anti-Semitic policies. And like 500,000 people turned out in Amsterdam in like 1941 in the biggest protest in Europe, you know? So they, the Dutch should really be commended for those things for sure. Yeah. One of the other things that you said was that one of Hani's missions was to stay human while yeah. carrying out her resistance work. So what did that mean to her and how did she do that? Yeah, that was, um, I really loved that line. And that was something that um, her comrade in the in the resistance cell, Truce, Truce's mother had always said that to her daughters. And Truce's mother was like a serious, radical, like political activist herself who had been <clears throat> helping refugees 
for decades, you know, since before the First World War. And it was her mom who said, you know, when you do this work and you're you're working with, you know, people who are in desperate need, that can turn you against sort of humanity in the sense of like, how, how are, are we doing this to other people? But also the work that Hani and Truce were doing in terms of actually killing people, um, you know, that's a big step. And um, I think the, the, this phrase became so potent between them because it was something they wrestled with every time they took on a job. You know, they definitely did not do it indiscriminately. They really tried to pick, you know, if they were going to pick a target to assassinate, it had to be worth it because they also knew that it would probably result in retributions against Dutch civilians who would get shot in retaliation. Uh, that happened a lot. So I think part of how she did try to stay human in those situations was a lot of it, I think, was with her friendship with Truce and Freddie and the other people in her very small cell who were really the only people she could talk to about what she was doing. Um, and I think just that human connection was incredibly important to her. I mean, there is a bit of a, I'm not going to, no spoilers, but there's a bit of a romance uh, thing that happens in the book, and which has also happened in real life. And, you know, that I think was the first time she had ever like had a boyfriend or been in love, you know, um, she was only 21 or something when she started in the resistance. So I think she was like having this bizarre experience of being this very young sheltered person suddenly thrust into this crazy life, very exciting and dangerous life. And also experiencing just like the normal things that we all experience, hopefully like young love and those friendships you make at that age, you know? And, um, so I think it, I think thinking about those individual people is probably how they stayed human, you know, to whatever extent they could. But I should say that the other women she worked with, um, you know, they, lots of people who were in the resistance, they're heroes, but they also suffered from PTSD for decades. You know, it's not, you don't get out of this, Jen, just you're a hero. It stays with you, you know? Yeah. So why do you think largely that history has kind of forgotten or not kept a long narrative of people like Hani? Are there just too many big names from the Second World War to keep track of them? Or is it because she's a woman or is it a variety of things? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a variety of things. I think, um, you know, there are I, I think to a certain extent, you know, it's like the human brain can only assimilate so much data. And so we do have like certain people who are here, like Corey Ten Boom, who's very deserving of, you know, she is a real true hero or Anne Frank, you know, these are like famous people from the Dutch Holocaust. But in Hani's case, um, you know, she's well known in the Netherlands, but not like I sort of compare her, her level of fame in the Netherlands to somebody in this country, like um, Sojourner Truth, mm. who's like, People have heard her name, but unless you have kind of looked into it, you might not actually really know who she was or what she did. You know what I mean? And Hani Shaft, I think, has been like that, although I think her her profile is is growing, uh, you know, year by year. And um, and I think also, you know, the communist cell or the resistance cell that she was in was a communist organized cell like within with the Dutch Communist Party. And after the war, 
as you know, we went straight into the Cold War and suddenly communists were bad, you know, and um, I think that that there's some speculation that that actually sort of hindered Hani's reputation in particular, because the Dutch government during the Cold War didn't really want to make a huge hero out of somebody who was supposedly a communist. I should say, I don't even think she was a communist, but whatever, you know. Um, yeah. the, I mean, who is it, 21? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And honestly, the communists are the ones who who uh, organized the giant protests that I was just talking about. Mm-hmm. Too. They were really one of the leading sort of forces for resistance in the Netherlands. So I think that had something to do with it as well. Yeah. It's really funny because... So Hani is from Harlem, which is right outside of Amsterdam, yeah. uh, which is a city that I have actually, uh, I stayed in when I went to the Netherlands. And oh, awesome. I got engaged there. I was going to say, she got oh, It's a really romantic and beautiful city. It's mm-hmm. so lovely. And so yeah. when I Googled Hani, the, her statue came up and I was like, I walked by that statue <laughs> every day. <laughs> it was her. So I was really excited to see that. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. That's so great. Yeah. So I do want to know, we love to ask people this. Did you get to go over there and travel and while you were doing your research for this book? Yeah. Um, You know, I did. And I actually discovered her story on a vacation, basically, uh, to to Amsterdam. We had some family who was staying there at the time. And um, trip there, we went to the um, Museum of the Resistance, which is in Amsterdam. And that was where I first saw just a little display case with her glasses in it, um, her her pistol that she used. And um, and then, so once I decided to really go for it, yeah, I went back, I think, two more times. And uh, I also went to England to do some of the research at their uh, National Archives. And it was great because I've always loved the Netherlands, but this gave me sort of a great excuse to just take more trips there. And I do have some friends who live there who were incredibly helpful, who were Dutch with like help me with translation and stuff. So it was, um, it was, yeah, I, I mean, I hope, I hope the writing this book means I get to go back a lot, but we'll see. <laughs> see, how, see how the Dutch like it, you know? Yeah. Right. Um, so we read that you actually got to interview some Dutch resistance fighters who survived from that time period. What was that like? Well, I will say that I interviewed their children. Well, basically when I started doing the book, which was seven years ago, two out of the three people I wanted to possibly interview were still alive. And now they have all passed away. I mean, that's how fast this generation is disappearing. So the, they weren't, the people I really wanted to interview were not really in good enough health to be interviewed, but I did talk to um, the, the daughter of Truce who is like Hani's best friend. And, um, you know, her truce was just an incredible person who went on in her life, basically to like keep doing this kind of work in peace, a peacetime setting. She uh, worked a lot in South Africa with um, on anti-apartheid measures, like all through that era. She started an orphanage in Soweto with Nelson Mandela to like, you know, for uh, orphans with who are HIV positive. She just did tons of work, you know, in Europe and elsewhere that was sort of anti-racism, social justice. And I mean, they're just totally inspiring. These, these people, they, they truly like dedicated their lives to trying to make it better, even though they had really seen the worst 
of humanity too, you know? Um, and despite having, you know, complex PTSD and all that stuff, you know? So it was very humbling even just to talk to her daughter, you know, cause, um, you can tell how proud their whole family is of her. And, um, it's, it, it's just, uh, it's just very inspiring and their, their kids are great too. I mean, they're kind of continuing the charge, so it's really nice. Yeah. What other kind of research did you get to do for this? Did you read wartime letters and other diaries, maybe of people who were, were around Hani's age, so you could kind of, kind of get a feel for her? Um, and and what was that process like? Yeah, um, I did do a lot of that kind of stuff that you're talking about. I, you know, I with research, and you know, my I may have a PhD in history, but it's not in Dutch history. So (laughs) I was, and I don't read Dutch, you know, I don't speak Dutch, although I can recognize a lot more of it now than I could a few years ago. But, um, you know, I generally with a project this big and kind of, to me, you know, totally foreign, I, you know, I first started with just big, um, the big picture. And I read, you know, big sort of books like the rise and fall of the third Reich, you know, and like sort of big histories and then sort of narrowed down, narrowed down. I did interview um, some survivors, you know, who had been Jewish people who had been hidden during the war, like as children who now are older. And um, and there's actually quite a few books that have been published of diaries of people who were people like Anne Frank who were in hiding, but also people uh, like you're saying who were in the resistance and wrote memoirs, um, you know, they usually didn't write diaries because it was too dangerous to be caught with a diary, you know, at the time. But there's a lot of memoirs that came out. And there were a lot, there was a lot of writing. I found it very moving. They, there was a ton of stuff published in like 1946, like literally a year after the war ended of essentially like memoirs and exposés and people just saying like the world needs to understand what happened here, you know, um, and people were very motivated to get those stories out. So fortunately, there is a lot of documentation in that sense. And did you feel, I, mean, I feel like whenever somebody's writing about the Second World War, it's a point of fascination. I'm a middle school history teacher and it's all the kids want to talk about, even though my job is to teach them about the Byzantines. Right. <laughs> so, also fascinating. <laughs> do you feel kind of like a pressure to like get things right, especially with a novel as opposed to a nonfiction book? Yeah, totally. I mean, I was very, um, you know, I was, that was part of the reason I was wary to even take on this project as a biography, because as you said, World War II is kind of, you know, it's like the Seinfeld of history, you know, he knows something about it. You know, we've all seen it on TV and, um, and, you know, I loved all those world war II band of brothers and all that stuff. But, um, but, you know, I remember on one research trip, I was taking the train from London to Amsterdam and through the channel. And I was seated across the table from this gentleman and we started chatting and it turned out, he was also writing a book about World War II. And we had this whole conversation about it. And I thought, oh my God, like, you know, this guy is going to think I'm such an amateur. But the truth is, there's so much, there's so much stuff out there about World War II. But also, it was such a gigantic, like, literally world war that, like, um, I just think there's there's still new things to be said about it. So that's what I kind of tried to focus on was like, I'm trying to tell a story that hasn't been told before. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, there's not a ton of people of experts out there to 
correct me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, I'm sure they'll come out of the woodwork, but yeah, right. Thank you. <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> well, perfect. Well, we're so excited about this book. People can pre-order it now. I just want to say that mm-hmm. um, for the <laughs> May 2nd release. So, and we're just really excited for this story to be shared because as we said, the world is thick with, with World War II stuff, but I feel like women, especially, especially women like Hanny, uh, yeah. you know, they kind of get overlooked and yeah. I'm just so excited for the story to be out mm-hmm. there. So if you can tell us where can people find your book, where can they find you and all the other things that you have written? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, probably the easiest thing is to just go to my website, buzzyjackson.com. Um, and, uh, but the book is, it will be available as of May 2nd, um, you know, anywhere books are sold. And I'm very happy to say it's being published in like nine different languages. So those are coming out in the next, like not, they're not all coming out exactly at the same time. And the book is coming out on May 11th in the UK with a different title. Actually, it's going to be called the girl with the red hair, which was something that Hitler, the way Hitler referred to her uh, when he found out about her and because nobody knew her name. So if you see that floating around, it's the same book, but it's just, um, you know, they added some different spellings. And um, yeah, so it's, it should be pretty easy to find, I think. Yeah. Well, that's really excited. I mean, just learning about Hani, I will say that for Katie and I, when we started our project about four or five years ago, a lot of people, and even us at the beginning, were like, will, will there be enough women? And they're sure. all like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> too many. <laughs> we can't it, keep up. <laughs> I know, right? It turns out 50% of the population. Yeah. You know? Not the time, even. Right? Of all time. <laughs> I know. It's crazy. Um, no, it's so important that you people like you are doing what you're doing because, yeah, there's so... I mean, that's the thing. There's still so many amazing stories. Stories I saw as I was doing my research. I was like, oh, I should write the next book about this incredible woman, you know? So... There's plenty out there, but thank you for doing what you're doing. It's really important. Thank you. And also people should request this book at their local, local library. library. If it's yes, please. Yet. We love um, libraries. You know, I heard a great story about, you know, a little girl who wanted to do like their class was doing a history report and all the kids went and did their reports on Amelia Earhart. So there are no more <laughs> Amelia Earhart books. <laughs> right. so the librarian said, well, here's one about Bessie Coleman. And then Betsy Cohen was like the hot new thing in this elementary school. (laughs) I'm thinking about the same thing for Hani. Who's going to get librarian? I hope so. I hope so because and librarians are really the ones who will make it happen for sure. They're incredible. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the support. I really appreciate it. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you again. (laughs) Yeah.